This episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson has been sponsored by London Glassblowing. Located in one of the capital's cultural hotspots of Bermondsey Street, it was founded by the pioneering Peter Layton in 1976 and has become one of the UK's most renowned contemporary glass studios. Importantly, it's a place where pieces are made as well as displayed, and visitors can come and watch resident artists such as Louis Thompson, Lane Rowe and Bruce Marks create work. Trust me, it's quite a sight. The studio is available for bespoke, private, corporate or public commissions. Each one is given careful and comprehensive consideration to provide unique and inspired solutions to any given brief. These may be free-blown, hot-worked in solid glass or moulded and kiln-formed as required and in consultation with the client. The gallery's next exhibition is entitled Celebrating Glass, 10 Years on Bermondsey Street, which opens on the 13th of September. For more details, go to londonglassblowing.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the third series of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We've been going a while now, but if you haven't heard the show before, then the notion is that I speak to a maker, designer, artist or architect about a material they're intrinsically linked to and discover how it changed their lives. Today, my guest is the inimitable Tom Dixon. The London-based designer began his eclectic career as a musician in the early 80s before learning to weld, whereupon he set about creating extraordinary Baroque pieces of furniture made from scrap metal. Since then, he has, in his own words, evolved from a hobbyist who loves to make things to a proper grown-up industrialist and designer. Over the years, he has collaborated with the likes of Italian manufacturer Capellini, taken senior positions at Habitat, given furniture away free in Trafalgar Square, and more recently, he's been working with the Swedish giant IKEA. Not only that, but he is the first, and I suspect the last, guest on this podcast to have performed on Top of the Pops. Tom, thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. Uh, pleasure to be here. I, I can't do this without talking about Tops and Pops, first and foremost. What's that got to do with materials? Nothing at all, but I'm just intrigued. Because um, it's, you know, for people of my generation, it was everybody's teenage dream. What was it, what was it like being on Tops and Pops? Um, it's a very synthetic environment. Uh, the symbols are not made from metal. They're made from plastic. Um, everybody mimes. And the crowd is much smaller than it appears. Mm. Um, the crowd rotates around three stages. So a small group of, of uh, fashionable young people get moved from uh, the front of one stage to another. And um, uh, the stage still exists in, in Shepherd's Bush in, 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 the, um, in the newly recreated um, housing project yes. that is uh, <laughs> Shepherd's Bush right now. So, you know, it, it, was, it was fun. It was uh, revealing. And um, it's a distant memory. So look, you've had this extraordinary, varied career. Um, you first became known in the design world um, for welding metal. Uh-huh. Um, so the obvious question to start this is, is, when did you learn to weld and how did that come about? So I'd been in bands for a couple of years. Um, and of course, it's uh, in the main a gig economy, literally, mm -hmm. right? And also, it's very nocturnal. So it leaves you with a lot of time in the day to muck about. Um, and I'd always been interested in motorcycles. I had vintage cars as well. I thought welding might be a useful skill. I had a friend who had a garage in um, Peckham, I think, uh, restoring Cinquecentos. And um, I just turned up one Saturday afternoon, and, and he taught me how to do oxyacetylene gas welding. And um, I do think I was immediately kind of 
captivated. You know, you're, you're, you've got a mask on your head. You're concentrating on a, on a, on a flame. There's fire, molten metal. And um, it was just great to be able to make very quickly um, very strong structures. Mm. And so rather than the boring um, aspects of restoring cars, which is, you know, you have to be very patient and very uh, meticulous, uh, actually banging together bits of metal to, to make bigger structures was what appealed to me almost instantly. So when you say bigger structures, was it immediately furniture? Um, yeah, pretty much. I, th I think, you know, I'd... I'd um, I'd had a failed attempt at going to art school. I did foundation class for about six months at um, Chelsea and tried, you know, a bit of graphic design, a bit of sculpture, a bit of painting, life because drawing. Because you made uh, posters for videos for the horror, or video covers for oh, the Oh, that was later on. Yeah, right. I had a, a, a six months in, in, in graphic design. But um, uh, anyway, the, the, the contemporary art scene... Um, seemed so kind of broad, you know, the, the, the blank sheet uh, syndrome, which is the, it can be almost anything mm. and has to be conceptual, didn't suit me very well. But making functional um, structures gave me immediately a framework to work within. So the excuse of it being a, a light or a chair, even if it was sculptural, um, just suited me to have that kind of um, format or, or departure point, which allows you to work within, uh, effectively, a, a, a design brief was, was what suited me. So it was very quickly practical things, and, and those things very quickly found a market. Was that what you disliked about art school, the, the, the blank page? Why did you end up dropping out? Um, well, I, I dropped out because I got knocked off my motorbike and broke a leg, so I spent you know, a, a, a month in hospital and... And, um, and it was immobile for a while, and it just didn't seem like I wanted to go back. But ultimately, no, I, I, the reason I, I didn't do um, art school anymore was, was more that I found it disappointing in terms of the teaching and, and um, that I wanted to experience real life, which meant getting a job. So that's what I did. Because mm. you were born in Tunisia, yep. and your parents, well, one taught English, the other yep. was a journalist with the World Service. Yeah. Which, which, which did which? My mother translated the news into French um, and read it out on the, on the um, World Service. My father was English teacher. Okay. So I'm guessing you came from quite a literary household. Was, was making part of your, your childhood, I wonder? No, they, they, not, they weren't um, creative in, in that sense. They, they, you know, they were always interested in, in, um, in culture, just in general, that's visual culture. You know, I was dragged around to a lot of churches, Romanesque churches, and um, I enjoyed museums. But no, there was no no design or art creativity. And then you moved to Huddersfield when you were quite young. Huddersfield, uh, when I was four, I think. Yeah. yeah. So from. Do you remember that? I remember the the the, the shock of, of going from a, a warm Mediterranean climate, <laughs> you know, uh, rushing around in the sun in Egypt, Morocco, to the cold stone walls of, yeah, the Yorkshire. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was, it was cold and it was damp and it was very cold um, winters, very high snow drifts. And, yeah, it was a, a real contrast. And then London? Yeah, London, uh, by the time I was five, so I only spent a year in, in Yorkshire. Right. And then, yeah, to uh, 
to London. Because your work is kind of probably more than any other designer I can think of, seems to be kind of inextricably linked with the capital. Would you, is that something you would agree with? Um, it's something that I definitely use in communication. I think is, is, is definitely gives us a, a sense of difference from the other brands in our sector. You know, the, 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 uh, the interior design furnishings market in contemporary is dominated or has been for uh, decades by the Italians um, or the Americans and more latterly the Danes. And, and uh, the UK doesn't really have a significant contemporary um, furniture or lighting or accessories um, business unless it's in the traditional. So yes, you know, we, we, we use it as a message and there's definitely things that, that I latch onto that, um, that give us a, a kind of a heritage which is different from, um, from the alternative. Mm. When did the music start? The music, well, the, you know, I'd been playing music since I'd, I was uh, at school and, and um, uh, when, when I left school and then subsequently art school, um, I played in a, in a variety of bands and took a variety of odd jobs, which included colouring in um, cartoons when those were still coloured in by hand, um, graphic design printer. I was a printer as well. I worked as a technician in, in the same art school, in Chelsea Art School, but in a different department, the interior design department, you know, working with the machines. And whilst I was doing all of those jobs, the, the, the band, a band took off, more a disco punky band. Mm. And um, we were very quickly um, popular in London and very quickly signed up um, to a record deal with Polygram. Um, and uh, they reopened a, a label called London Records for us. And um, we were stable mates with variously Bananarama and, and others. Produced and by Kid Creole, right? August, August produced Donnell. by, yeah, Kid Creole, which was in retrospect, I think, a mistake. And we crashed and burned as fast as we, as we, um, as we took off. And, and then I had a, another um, motorbike accident where I broke my arm and was unable to go on tour. Um, I was replaced by a friend of mine who, who's now the replacement bass player for Pink Floyd, so that mm. could have been my destiny. And, um, and it, was, it was then, really, that the, the welding activity kind of took over from, um, from, the, um, from the music. And, and uh, in the meantime, we'd, we'd been on tour um, in the States, and, and we'd, we'd seen the uh, resurgence of nightclub business in, in New York and, 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 and wanted to create something like that in London. And, and I did spend two years doing nightclubs, and those nightclubs ended up being a couple of buildings that had stages and, mm. and we did welding as performance as well so making things live on stage as well. Can we talk a bit about about what the capital looked like? You set up Creative Selvage with Nick Jones, Mark Brazier Jones in what 84 or something I think. Mm -hmm. uh, Nick Jones has been the lead singer with Funkapolitan, your band. Mm -hmm. um, and it seemed to me when, when you hear the stories of, of how you set up and, and it, they kind of dovetail with stories that Ron Arad tells of around that same period, London seemed uh, very different than it does today. Can we, can we kind of describe for maybe a generation or two generations that, that didn't know the capital at that point, who might be listening to this, what it was like? Well, it was not a, a design-aware city, and it certainly wasn't a food city. It was much less cosmopolitan and homogenous than it is now. Um, there was no design museum, there was no um, interior design pages in the, in the Sunday papers. 
And, um, you know, th there were people that were designers, but they were proper uh, designers for industry. And, and so there was a, there were, but there was a very strong counterculture. I mean, I remember it as, as reasonably gray and, and, and miserable. Mm. It was the Thatcher era. There was a, 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 it was pretty depressed, I think, in, in a way. And we looked at other cities for entertainment. You know, Paris was really hot on the club scene and, and very interesting from the perspective of art. You know, they had a, a culture minister and they were opening new museums. And um, it was all very exciting in Paris. Um, we started off doing exhibitions in Japan or in Germany, um, which was where... Um, people were authentically interested in new currents in design. You know, so there was very little to do here in mm. London. And the majority of my customers when I started selling were people that might have been Italians in finance in London or, or Germans over for the weekend. How did they find you? Um, I started very early doing exhibitions. I mean, you know, in, in the nightclub business, we also had the benefit of knowing a vast amount of people very superficially, you know, so that you're, you're exposed to many, many people who tended to be in, in international, tended to be um, also in creative jobs. These people had hairdressing salons or were... Um, doing a shoot or doing a shop window and, and needed stuff, you know, needed um, newness. And a lot of my customers and clients at the time were, I guess, from the fashion industry, which was a constant need for the latest thing. There's a, a lovely uh, quote that I found from Creative Salvage that says, it's slightly long, so bear with me. Uh, we are convinced that the way ahead does not lie in expensive, anonymous, mass-produced, high-tech products, but in a more decorative, human approach to industrial and interior design. So were you, were you kind of consciously anti what was going on in the design scene as it existed at that point? Were you aware of things like Memphis, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think at the time it was much easier to be counterculture and, and certainly in, in design particularly from the Italian standpoint, there was this very kind of synthetic, um, very patterned surface uh, look with very strong geometries, which, you know, was was easy to define and, and therefore easy to rebel against, you know. So, so and, and then the other current seemed to be a very kind of serious, uh, kind of modernist aesthetic, mm. you know, chrome, and black leather. So kind of Bauhaus. Bauhaus and, um, and uh, yeah, I mean. Because I think Habitat was selling a lot. I, I seem to remember having a, a what must yeah. have been obviously a, a knockoff. Yeah, so th uh, that seemed very, very new at the time. Of course, by, by then it was already 50 years old, yeah, but it seemed yeah. like, like that was design. And design was very serious, it was very masculine. Um, it was very power play, you know, it was shoulder pads at the time. And, and, and that was the, um, the aesthetics. So there was two aesthetics, and and then to come along with a, a rusty, um, you know, anti-establishment uh, aesthetic was actually much easier than it would be now. Mm. And uh, actually, we didn't have a lot of money to buy raw materials, and uh, so the the scrap um, metal thing was uh, pragmatic as well. Because the way you, you 
describe it, Chelsea Harbour, which is now obviously luxury flats and expensive showrooms designed by people like Zaha, um, that was a scrap heap, right, where you found material? Well, it was more than a scrap heap. It was, it was acres and acres mm. of, of wilderness with um, uh, two or three scrap yards and scrap metal merchants that were um, getting things uh, from, from delivered by boat were, were working. There's still a couple of them up on uh, at the other end, and you know, more, more towards the estuary in, in Greenwich um, that still operate in the same way. Mm. But it was big. Um, remnants of what had been a, 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 a manufacturing city. You know, London had had you know had um, until recently a, a lot of workshops and manufacturers. It's all gone now. But we were witnessing the the, the final collapse of it <laughs> in the eighties. And this notion, because you never went to art school, presumably you had to sell things straight away. I mean, how did that affect what you did? I wonder. Yeah, I thought about about this a, 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 an amount, particularly since I started teaching in occasionally going into art schools and doing projects or, or teaching and there's a you know as a post rationalization the the fact that I never did design in a theoretical way always made me interested in in the commerce of it and also the the, the direct the thrill of 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 the sale you know the 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 fact that you could have an idea and and, and make it and that people would endorse it by pulling out their wallets and and buying something mm. had something of the alchemy aspect to it. You were turning uh, a base metal into gold, um, and very quickly, you know. So, and I think you know the, the, what appealed to me is is you know the fact that the you were in charge of the whole process from the idea creation to the sale of 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 the of the idea, and I think that's. Um, that's very rare unless mm. you're a baker or mm. something. You know, there's there's not so many jobs where you're able to actually come up with an idea, produce it, and then and then sell it to somebody who 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 likes it. Sometimes within a day, mm. you know, and, and you know, in a way, although it's no longer a day that I do that in, it's still what appeals to me today. There's a lovely story. I mean, in in your your book, dictionary, um, you're very open about. Things that went wrong. I think it's more interesting to fail. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's too many people talking about their successes. <laughs> and there's a lovely story about um, selling a, a batch of furniture to Patrick Cox, the uh, upmarket shoe designer, mm -hmm. um, where it all, well, what happened? I mean, this is a new process you were looking at, or? No, I'd, I'd used, um, I'd, I'd suddenly discovered copper and copper tubes and, and, you know, very available from any plumbing shop and very low tech in terms of how you put it together. You, you hold um, plumbing together with lead solder, mm. which is much lower temperature than, than welding. So it's, it's, um, it's a very convenient way of, of making stuff. Easy to cut metal as well. Doesn't need any, 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 and it's semi-precious metal, so it was very appealing on so many fronts. But what I didn't factor in was that it's very easy to, to solder together copper pipes, but they're not. Um, that's not a technique which lends itself to um, constant movement, which is what you get in in a chair. So perfect when you sell it, but after you know ten or twenty dinner parties, um, the things <laughs> were working themselves loose, and, and so the things were were collapsing around um, Patrick's dinner table, so he wasn't happy. And also, um, the flux that you use is quite poisonous, and and, and, uh, and that, that I probably hadn't cleaned it up particularly well. But that's, you know, that's how I taught myself through, you know, through um, 
a lot of failures actually and and, and um, you know there, there is a, a, a definitely in structural uh, engineering I think called testing to destruction mm. which is sort of what happened in a natural way to my product <laughs> <laughs> um, shame it was at Patrick's dinner party <laughs> did, was it actually at dinner did it all did it all fall about at a dinner oh, party oh I wasn't invited I, I wasn't invited but you know, you know I had visions of that you know well, what is the uh, designers interested in chairs what, why why have people so and remain so fascinated in with chairs um I, th I just think there is a, a, a direct relationship with humans, which you don't get in any other object. You know, a chair has legs and feet and, and it has arms and a back. It doesn't have a head. Um, but um, uh, there's no other object which, which, which is so body-shaped mm. and, and so relevant to humans. It's also a completely useless object. I mean, primitive man did not need a chair, right? And, and it has all kinds of connotations with power and, and, uh, and work and all of those things. So the, the chair remains the, the object apart from a bed that you have um, most contact with. And of course, it's, it's, it's portable as, as an object. It's, it's something that you can have several in a home. Um, and so there's so many layers of, of, of reason why it's of interest, you know, to um, architects and designers. And, you know, for architects, it's probably um, the smallest object that they'll stoop to mm. as well. <laughs> um, and, and it's something that you need in, in, a, in an interior, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not an accessory in that way. So, um, and, and you, you get a lot more opportunity to, to play with the sculpture of it than you would probably with a table or a or a bed which is probably the other piece of furniture which is significant in in terms of the amount of time that you interact mm. Mm. and the other interesting thing about that cox story was that your work had kind of changed because london had changed you won't find you so much scrap metal you were going into plumbers merchants and diy stores to make your your stuff at that time well, that wasn't so much to do with the lack of availability of, of scrap metal. It was to do more with the fact that people were asking me for multiples. Right. And of course, you know, in, in the scrap, you, you, you get what you find. So you, you, I was moving faster into making things in, in, in series. And that meant that I had to either use virgin material. But I was still in a stage where um, the, the predetermination of the components coming from a kitchen shop or a plumbing shop was actually informing the shape mm. of the final object, you know, and that, that was still, you know, and it's still something that, that I've forgotten about, but, you know, I, I am interested in um, now. It's, a, it's almost like the ready-mades of, I don't know, Picasso or, or whatever, that, that, that you can see... Um, something beyond um, your own ideas emerging from the raw material that mm. of your... Because you were using what candles and things at that stage, right? Well, the, the, you know, it was, it was cheaper for me to, to buy a wok to get a large hemisphere than it was, you know, to make a lamp or something than it was to get one made in a, in a, in a spinning workshop. So it was, it was pragmatic, but the, 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 the forms in, in, those, in those plumbing shops or builders' merchants or cooking shops suggested um, functions, you know, alternative functions to me. Um, and I, I don't know, and, and that sort of short-circuited a lot of, um, a lot of uh, 
the hard work that came that, that came um, with designing things. Mm. Mm. I mean, you haven't worked with that many British manufacturers. I mean, SCP, I think George Smith, and you were picked up by Capellini for the S chair in '89. I mean, was it tempting to stay in that? furniture, high-end furniture-making system from then on. Someone like James Irvine, he moved out to Milan, didn't he? I mean, I think after the Mini Metro was, was, uh, was put on the market, he decided he couldn't stand British industry any longer and left. Were you tempted to, to hang around with the Italians? After the Mini Metro? Yeah, it's really? true. It's true. It's what he told me, bless <laughs> was that? Um, Yes and no. I mean, the, 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 the thing is that um, uh, I was approached by Italian industry. I was never approached by British industry until, until I'd made a, a, a reputation um, with the Italians. Um, and they were clearly themselves looking for alternatives to, um, to the studio system that was in Milan. I think the, that there'd been you know, 20 or 30 years of amazing innovation in, in, in Italy. Um, and they'd kind of led the world in, in terms of um, rethinking how you live, you know. And um, that kind of run out of steam and they were looking for ideas uh, abroad. Capellini was quite brave and, and was um, uh, uh, rejected by his, his peers in Italian manufacturing for going outside of the studio system. and. And, and picking on London to find new inspiration. So there was several of us that, that um, got involved. Um, and um, it, it's very appealing because it taught me a lot about um, the value of design to industry. You know, the, the Italians have got this um, real belief in, in design in a way that just doesn't exist in mm. the UK. Mm. And still. We, well, I think it's a combination of the fact that, that there's very few companies that, that um, have got um, the infrastructure for international um, distribution and, and high-quality manufacturing or, or innovative manufacturing, whereas in Italy um, there was, and still are, many smaller, very specialised workshops that, that often are still family-run, that are able to make their own decisions about who they work with and, and, and why. Mm. I mean, most of the manufacturing in the UK is either really big or so specialist that it can't cope with doing small batches of things. And I'd always wanted to work more with um, UK manufacturing, but there's limitations and, and, um, and also obstacles to, to working, which, which made it very difficult to do what I needed to do here. Anyway, so it was very appealing. Um, but I was never um, a, a competent and prolific designer in the way that um, some of my more trained peers were. And, and I didn't actually like working to order. So when yeah. it worked best was when um, the Italians would come into my studio and just pick a couple of things that I'd been musing over. You know, so I worked much more like a sculptor, um, having my own ideas and developing them slowly and anonymously. Um, and then people came in and picked things and then put them into production. But when I started trying to design in a more conventional way to a specific brief, um, <laughs> it became, you know, it sort of, uh, it, it kind of revealed my limitations, if you like. Do you put that down to lack of training? That's quite interesting. Well, it might be lack of training. It might be lack of desire to be a proper designer. You know, I, I, I like a lot of 
creative is like noodling around on my own with mm. nobody knowing what I'm doing until I'm ready to reveal it. You know, so I guess that that might be a bit more like uh, like a, like an artist than a designer. Um, so I don't know. I, I do think that that great designers can react to any brief and 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 output something. I have to be authentically interested in a subject, and that was never <laughs> that that wasn't always the case. So um, I might have gotten good at it through practice, but it, it interested me more to to have mastery over my own destiny. So I did then try subsequently to do slightly more international facing plastics company. Mm. Um, yeah. Because there's a determination throughout your career, it seems to me, to do your own thing, whether it's space, opening the shop in the, whenever that was, the mid-90s, um, you did your, you set up your own manufacturing Euro lounge, where you did the jack light, that kind of thing. I mean, was that about control or doing things in your own time or? I don't, you know, anybody that knows me knows that I'm not particularly a control freak, but I, I like um, testing out things and I like doing them at my own pace and, and it seemed like the, the best thing to do. But of course, um, that changed completely when I joined Habitat and I did the opposite, which was to go into proper corporate life for a massive organisation. You know? So um, I, I like trying new things, you know, and then and then seeing how they develop. It was a fascinating decision, that. I mean, you say in, in your book that your friends found it mystifying and disappointing. Yeah, some of them were quite rude. You know, <laughs> like, why, why would you do that? And, um, so, why, did you, why did you do that? You know, I had, a, I had two children and, and um, uh, you know, I'd, 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 I'd got to a stage where I had a, a, a huge workshop in South London with 17 lads doing mm. doing metal work it was you know we had a couple of clients that failed to pay and I kind of started realizing the limitations of my non-training in in everything I you know I didn't know how to run a factory I didn't know how to run a shop I didn't know how to how to even do metal work formally you know I had no certificates or and and um and it just felt a bit shaky and unstable. And, and the idea of, of doing something where I didn't have ultimate responsibility for everything, for the rent, for the bank, for the clients, for the marketing, for the, for the leases and the rest of it was very appealing. So it was just kind of getting rid of all of my responsibilities. I gave all of my tools to my, um, to my, my um, longest serving uh, metal workers and they're still making stuff today, which is kind of nice. And, and jump ship and, and tried something completely fresh and new. So it was it was kind of half, you know, my 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 personal situation, half um, having reached the limit of what I thought I could do in in that sector, and then the, the possibility of of, um, of really learning learning, you know, again, mm. Mm. rather than making it up myself. Yeah, I mean, and and did you learn? Were there things you've taken from Habitat? into your eponymous company that you founded, what, in 2002, I think I'm right in saying? Yeah, I mean, you know, vast amounts are, are about everything. You know, the, the, the company was owned by IKEA at the time, which mm. made it effectively the biggest furniture group in, in the world. So jumping from a, a, a small um, self-manufacturing, self-taught setup in, in South London to, to that whole universe of possibilities that is big retail and... And, and big manufacturing was a kind of an amazing lesson in, in what really goes on globally, both in terms of manufacturing 
but also what people really buy around the world, mm. you know, to furnish their homes. And then, you know, couple that with uh, this huge array of categories that I'd never played in, and that went from textiles to tableware to toys and beyond, you know, art even, you know, that we did art prints or plants, you know, we sold a million pounds worth of a curly bamboo twig, you know, that you, you could, you could, you know, if I decided that I wanted to go and see um, the, the, the international um, commercial flower show in, in Holland, I would do that. And, and I learned a lot about um, logistics and about marketing and branding and communication just in general uh, and very little about design mm. apart from commissioning design because really. you describe yourself as having a chaotic mind in that's a strap line to your book i mean yeah. is that is that true yeah but you know I'm, I'm a subscriber to chaos theory where you know having a chaotic mind doesn't particularly mean that you can't spot a pattern in in that chaos and i think a lot of designers kind of do that they make leaps of imagination between different um influences or different different inputs and and, and try and, and and create something new out mm. of it so i don't think it's a bad thing it's just i'm very um you know anyone that surrounds me knows that it, that, that yeah I'm, I'm not linear because nowadays and not ordered the company is you're a minority shareholder in the i company. know <laughs> <laughs> and i'm wondering i'm wondering uh you know venture capitalists and a designer with a chaotic mind that can be quite an interesting relationship, one would imagine. Yeah, and, and I think you know I've, I've learnt how to um, to be slightly more disciplined and 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 share you know an ambition with a private equity ownership, but it requires a, 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 a an interesting combination of um, states of mind. You know, the, particularly not having your own name is an odd mm. one, you know, or not being majority in your own mm. name is a peculiar one. But, um, you know, I want the, the company to be a success, which is what they want it to be. Um, sometimes I don't want to go at the pace that they want to go. But um, like we said at the beginning, I've always been interested in the, in the commerce angle. You know, I do think that if you're uh, a designer, if, if nobody buys your work, then you're not in a particularly good place you know and and so it's it's I've, I've separated out less the commerce from um the creativity but any good business is is you know is a creative business mm. as well so that there's elements of creativity that you can bring to bear not just to the shape of things but to the the shape of the business itself or or, or how you see it progress and ultimately getting other people's money into the business allows me to do more i wouldn't be able to have uh, headquarters this big if I if I hadn't um, uh, taken some money. Yeah, let's let's talk about that because it's extraordinary this place. I mean, you moved into your headquarters in King's Cross about twelve months ago now from West London, the dock. Um, I mean, what do you for the listeners? What what do you have here? Well, we're sitting on the Grand Union Canal, which obviously is a conduit of of. Uh, of industry and development, you know, in Victorian Britain, so and pre-Victorian Britain, actually, you know, so so there's something symbolic about that which I quite like. It's um, the Grand Union Canal, and this is a canal building which um, probably dates from about 1850, and was it's called the Coal Office, and that's because 
Um, it was a uh, office and, and warehouse processing the coal that would come from the collieries up north and arrive in King's Cross because we're sitting here um, in the middle of the new development um, of Granary Square, opposite the um, very famous Saint Martin's uh, Central Saint Martin's School of Art. Um, but the buildings are, are, are firmly Victorian, and we have seventeen thousand square foot and maybe one hundred and twenty employees working on what is now an international brand, um, selling furniture, lighting, and accessories. But we've also got a restaurant. Um, which has another 45 staff and is um, part of this complex where I'm trying to not have as much distinction between the food and the furnishings and the, the, the smells and the textures of a place um, as other labels might. So here we have our interior design team, we have our, our product design team, but we also have the people that develop those and sell them and market them and the people that processing invoices. Um, so this is our international headquarters. And the food is interesting. Obviously, you had a restaurant at your previous HQ at the dock, mm -hmm. restaurant here. You've just done a restaurant earlier this year in Milan. What's the fascination with food, with restaurants, with, I guess, bringing the public in? Well, I, I think, you know, we, we learned in the last studio, which was very much more off pitch, you know, it was a kind of tertiary location. There was not a lot of, in fact, there was no passing trade at all that, um, that by adding a food component, we, we get more visitors just in general. Um, it so happened that studio had, um, had been Virgin Records and had a staff canteen. And so the kitchen was there and I was able to start a restaurant with very little in, uh, infrastructure and very little planning permission and very little um, investment. You know, I did the furniture and I managed to get a chef in that was interested in creating a cookery book and, and it developed into a restaurant. But we, we, we made the link between um, hosting people and, and selling furniture. I think what, one of the difficulties about this sector, furniture and lighting, is that it's a very dusty business in retail. Mm. You know, if you have a shop, um, people do not come for a repeat purchase of a dining table, you know, not maybe once every <laughs> 30 or 40 years. So it's not going to be one of those living um, emporiums if you're just a furniture store. But when you have a, a restaurant, you're able to demonstrate and, and make those objects come alive every day, two or three times a day if you're doing breakfast as well. And you get a new crowd and a new vibe and a new energy and new smells um, in the space. And of course, the furniture is something that you need to have. And we're able to demonstrate um, how you could um, use them and, and get people to sit in them for a couple of hours and, and um, test out new ideas in, in a restaurant, make the whole building come alive with, with how you live rather than trying to flog um, a couple of chairs to somebody. So it's, it's been uh, uh, instrumental in, in my ideas about how we should sell to the public. Um, and I, I see that also as being just one of the things that we want to do here beyond just um, selling stuff. Because food is a material, right? You know, I mean, this is part of what you well, do. Well, it's part of your podcast series. It, I mean. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm gemming it in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it is, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a material, it's immediate. You see the public's um, or your consumer's love of it or otherwise almost immediately, which is very different from even when you were doing chairs very, very quickly, 
must be a very different experience as a designer. Well, I mean, I, I see more the the analogies than the, than the differences. You know, the the you know, particularly to to what I was doing at the very beginning. You know, you apply heat to a raw material and you mm. convert it into something that people want to buy. Um, I think you know we we we've always collaborated with chefs that share our interest in uh, presenting. Um, good quality materials in a simple way, kind of thing. But there, there's a there's an addictive quality about entertaining people and and um, and being in the kitchen, which is very hard to replicate in slow moving goods for sure. But you know, I, I see, like I say, more similarities than than differences. What what's perplexed me here is is how much harder it is to sell. Um, a plate for thirty pounds, which you'll have for a lifetime, than it is to sell a plate of food mm. that sits on top of it. You know, so so that that's been kind of uh, yeah. The value judgments there are kind of interesting. Well, we did a, an interesting experiment uh, last summer where we worked with St Martin's that have got a very good ceramics department mm. on the other side, where where we we hired a couple of their um, of their students over the summer to to. Um, to get the general public in to make one plate for themselves and one plate for our restaurant. So a lot of people are eating off, off plates that have been made by the public here. But um, we tried to sell the plates subsequently and, and it was almost impossible. Mm. But the restaurant became very popular at, at the same time. So, you know, it, it's, it's, and, and, and ceramics is, is very close to um, the analogy of, of, of cooking food. You know, you, you get your piece of clay you shape it, you put it in the oven, and then you take it out, and, and it's been transformed into something that people um, will buy. You know, because that brings me on to something I was going to ask. You have this kind of micro manufacturing in the shop downstairs. Making is still very important to what you do. Well, we've got we've got a space that we call the factory, which we use for experiments in in small batch production, or if we need to make a, a one-off piece, or or if the design studio needs um, a bigger space to build a prototype or the rest of it. It's um, it's it's had three or four experiments in in making stuff, um, whether that's dyeing textiles or making ceramics, or more recently. Um, working with circuit boards to to manufacture small batch lighting products, um, and uh, it's I think it's it's um, just like with the open kitchen in in um, in the restaurant, people are, are, are really interested in in how you make things and and how the process happens, and I think you know particularly in in designed objects, we're so divorced from. Um, where things were actually made that nobody knows how things are made anymore. So th there was an element of trying to demonstrate a bit the process of designing, prototyping, and then eventually trying to work out if if we could um, actually make batches of things here much closer to the public, um, very much like I did at the very beginning of, mm. of my career, which also has itself a, a kind of you know an urgency about it given... Um, the current political climate of, of, um, of you know, import duties and, and, and potentially export duties as well. So it may well be that the, the hell that is Brexit encourages us to, to, to manufacture. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, that, that without a lot of political um, uh, uh, momentum that will happen, but we can do it in a small way ourselves. Uh, I mean, just because we're coming to the end of our time, but um, more recently, you've been collaborating with IKEA. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there was the, the bed sofa, which has been on a documentary and everything else. 
but uh, most recently the stuff at the Chelsea Flower Show, where you're, you're talking about gardening saving the world. How is gardening going to save the world? Well, you only have to switch on the telly to, to understand the, the, the urgency of, of so many um, aspects of the, of the um, deteriorating natural world and the urgency with which we have to nurture it. And I think, you know, replanting, you know, I, th I think people are, are desperately at loss as to what they could possibly do um, themselves. And, and planting kind of does that naturally. I mean, it's... it's um, it, it's definitely where we live in a, in a country that, that might have been forested by, um, you know, something like 60 or 70 percent in its original state, and it's now down to 15 percent. So, in a small way, everybody can plant something, whether that's to reduce their their dependence on supermarket foods, or or whether that's planting a tree which will eventually absorb a lot of CO2. Um, so is, is there's something about the directness and the universal appeal of gardening, which I think is is very relevant right now. And also from the perspective of designing, I think it's kind of interesting how inverted it is compared to what you normally do in product design. You know, in, in, in gardening, if you're doing a garden, um, you, you, the results may, may mature in 100 years. You're starting something rather than finishing something mm. off. And I'm sort of fascinated by that. And uh, we're recording in June. Um, we're likely to be publishing this around September, mm -hmm. which is London Design Festival yeah. time. Uh, do you have plans for London Design Festival? Yeah, the, the, I think the whole uh, estate will come alive with design because Design Junction, which is a trade fair, um, will will come back here, and 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 so there'll be a, a big focus on design here in the estate. I mean, ourselves, we're we're looking at something which I've been thinking a lot about with our interior design team here, which is um, going beyond just the the the. the obvious interior design things that you work on, which are to do with the comfort and the shape of things and the color of things and, and looking at the other senses. So we're calling it touchy, feely, smelly, noisy. And, 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 and that means that we're looking at the other aspects of um, the senses that you, you use when you experience the space. Obviously, um, uh, it's actually touchy, feely, smelly, noisy, tasty. Probably okay. yes. We don't want to forget tasty as well. <laughs> so, but, fine, but, right? so, so that means you know what you smell when you come into a place. You know, mm. dealing with things like the acoustics of a space, which are increasingly important in terms of of how poor the acoustics are in so many restaurants and public spaces. Thinking a bit about the texture of things and and you know the the, the tactile quality of, of things. Um, working out, you know, the, the the you know design of food that we're going to incorporate, and and um, getting lots of partners to make the whole place alive, also with with music and 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 smells and and textures. So, yep, that's what we're doing. Because you you have a scent now, right? I mean, you are a perfumier or a candle uh, a designer maker. Um, what what is the what is the scent of Tom Dixon? Well, it's not so much um, our smell, although we've got one called London, which I think is the closest to, to, to defining a bit um, the characteristics, the olfactory characteristics, characteristics of, of the label. Um, you know, you use different scents at different times of the day to in different rooms to create di different atmospheres. I think that, you know, when you think about your experiences in 
in in visiting um, a space, you, you can be struck by the smell of a space as much as by um, the lighting, let's say. And and uh, you know the 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 idea that an interior design is not finished until you've got the luminosity. Um, the acoustics and, and the smells of the space sort of legitimizes my adventures in 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 interior design in perfume, if you like. So, um, and and you know, I like the idea that that even if you visit the bathroom here and wash your hands, you'll be able to to leave the building and still have um, a, just a shadow of your of your visit still with you as you go on to the underground kind of thing. Mm. So, you know, there, there's there's something about um, the power of the other senses um, in our sector, which I think are, are, are very interesting and, and allow us to um, create a more complete experience. I mean, you're, you're a brand now, Tom. Are there boundaries for that brand? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think there needs to be a, a logic to the stepping stones that you take beyond what, what you do. But, you know, I, I think the fight is always to... to 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 stop being classified as a specific something, you know, I've been all kinds of I've been classified so many times. I've had to fight my way out of being a scrap metal merchant or or a, a plastic lamp specialist or somebody that just makes chairs or somebody that that, that works for a big corporation. And and you know, I, I I constantly jump from the frying pan into a new fire um, of my own making because a I get bored, but b also is that ultimately I, I never had in mind that I was going to be a product designer in the first place, and I don't see why I should restrict myself to that. I do think that um, some of our ambitions in in food, for instance, are also um, legitimate. But what you have to do is is show a really personal attitude to it, which is authentic. Right now, I don't think you can just do random um, random things where you don't where you haven't delved a bit into it and and, and produced a new. Um, a new ad attitude, which is personal. It's a brilliant place to finish. Tom, thank you very much. Right, we went beyond material then, didn't we? That's what it is. It's okay. great, brilliant. I Good. loved it. Thank, thank you, you very, much. And to learn more about Tom Dixon's work, go to www.tomdixon.net. There are images from the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this from and go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. And finally, thank you so much to this episode's sponsor, London Glassblowing. Do check out its excellent gallery and remember that its new exhibition, Celebrating Glass, 10 Years on Bermondsey Street, opens on the 13th of September. For more details, go to londonglassblowing.co.uk. Thanks very much for listening.